Welcome to Dispatch Live. Uh, I'm David French uh, here at the Dispatch, and we've got a, a we've got a great lineup for you tonight. Um, my new colleague Klein Kitchen is with us. So Klein's been with us before. Klein, including I think one time when we had a spectacular tech meltdown. That might yep. that that was your first Dispatch. I was like, welcome to the Dispatch as our tech just detonates. So this will go better. This will go better. Um, we're also joined by uh, Klon's friend, my friend, Professor Paul Miller at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. Um, Paul's got a resume, y'all. Um, former U.S. Army, um, analyst with the CIA, uh, Bush administration official, um, and professor at Georgetown. And he's just written a book. And uh, many people are saying... Paul, that this book, uh, which is really, really outstanding, it's called The Religion of American Greatness, What's Wrong with Christian Nationalism. Many people are saying it also includes an indispensable foreword. Uh, so good that it may have overshadowed uh, the book itself. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> David, thank you for your kindness in writing the foreword to the book. I appreciate it. Uh, it's a wonderful book. Um, and so here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about the book for a bit. Uh, we're going to also talk um, and pick Klon's brain for a bit about um, his rather bold call to ban TikTok. And then we're going to end up with some discussion about Ukraine, Afghanistan. So as always, please send us your questions, and I will intersperse your questions uh, during the conversation. But uh, Paul, let's just go ahead and get started. You, I think a lot of people would say, I agree with you that there's something wrong with Christian nationalism. Uh, but first, don't we need to define our terms? Because a lot of what the left calls Christian nationalism seems to be just Christians being involved in politics. And then a lot of the, about the way the right defines Christian nationalism is so narrowly <laughs> that it's not nearly as relevant as it actually is. So how are you defining Christian nationalism? And how are you, I mean, thesis of the book, what is Christian nationalism? What is wrong with it? In, in 30 seconds or less, right? In 30 seconds uh, or less, summarize hundreds yeah. of pages. Go. Uh, thanks for the question. And um, this is kind of the whole ballgame, right? And, and you're absolutely right. Some people are using the term in lots of different ways. Uh, Christians should be involved in politics. I'm a Christian. I'm involved in politics. And that's not Christian nationalism. Um, some, some people on the right are claiming Christian nationalism proudly and saying, hey, I love my country. Why shouldn't I call myself a Christian nationalist? Right. So I, I'd call myself a patriot. I love America, served America in the army and, and elsewhere. Uh, so that's not Christian nationalism either. Um, I looked at the scholarly definition of nationalism to try to understand what nationalism around the world is and what it looks like before I started to think about Christian American nationalism. So if you want to think about nationalism for a second, nationalism, uh, a nationalist looks at the world and says that we can draw a map of all the world's cultures that looks a lot like a checkerboard. There's these discrete squares with clear, hard boundary lines that says this over here, this square is the essence of Frenchness, French culture. And this square over there is German-ness, right? Mm -hmm. And once you've drawn that map, then you know the, what the map of the world's governments should look like. There should be a perfect one-to-one -one correspondence that every square on that checkerboard gets its own government. Another way of putting it is that uh, government should regulate culture and should safeguard and upkeep and maintain our, our cultural identity so that it continues across the, the generations. 
right? That's what nationalism means very broadly. And so an American Christian nationalist says, we're a Christian nation. Uh, we, we were defined by Christianity at the outset. Our founders were professing Christians. They founded the country on Christian values. So we need to continue being a Christian nation in the future. And it's a rightful function of our government to keep it that way. And so we American Christians should vote and advocate in the public square, not just for justice for all, but we should vote for keeping a Christian identity in our public square. That I think is a good definition of Christian nationalism. You know, I, um, I'm sure you're familiar with Thomas Kidd uh, at Baylor, and yep. he has described Christian nationalism in a really interesting way as less of a set of ideological propositions and more a sense of emotional commitments. Um, he talks about in, in a, a piece I wrote about Christian nationalism where he saw a, um, a, a sign that said, Trump 2020, make faith great again, or something like that. Yeah. And it doesn't really present a set of ideological propositions, but it does present kind of a feeling, an impulse, and uh, a, a, an emotional connection between Christianity and the nation. So how much do you think Christian nationalism is sort of this emotional impulse versus an actual ideological set of propositions? Yeah, so it's both and. Uh, I think any ideology you can look at and define kind of from the top down, so to speak, from its ideologues and um, um, articulate defenders, or you can look at it from the bottom up, how it's practiced in, in the world. And I try to do top down for the first maybe half of this book, and then I kind of do sort of bottom up uh, in the latter half of the last three chapters or so. And there, are, uh, there, there can be a little bit of divergence, right? The, the ideologues, and here I'll, I'll name names, Samuel Huntington, famous scholar, wrote his book, Who Are We? And it's a very good, very clear exposition, I think, of Christian nationalism, uh, where he says we're defined by our Anglo-Protestant heritage. We have to, we have to sustain that. Um, you know, the, his program might not fully overlap with the bottom-up version of Christian nationalism, the emotional, uh, experiential version of it. There can be divergence, you know, that, that's true of any ideology. Uh, I think it's worth looking at both top down and bottom up so you can get the full sense of what this thing is, uh, both as an articulated ideology and as an embodied practice. Um, Klon, feel free to jump in with any questions. Otherwise, I'll just keep monopolizing Paul. Yeah, so. <laughs> no, I've, I've got it. No, it's great. Uh, so, Paul, I think just to keep uh, trying to draw some some clear lines of distinction for, for the listeners. So, if um, I look at the what I would describe as cultural degradation inside the United States, and I would see the the march of um, kind of a sexual ethic and and other uh, ideologies that I think are corrosive to our society and doing real damage to individuals, and then I also think that um, a a a return to a to a historical. Uh, U.S. culture and ethic, which was heavily influenced, decisively influenced by a Christian worldview. Is that Christian nationalism? So you're, you're, you're invoking a kind of a narrative of American history here, right? Things were great, then there was the decline and fall. And things being great were also Christian, and now today they're sort of post-Christian. And that narrative is only kind of half the truth, right? Um, there were aspects of American culture that were better back then. And there's aspects of American culture that are actually much, much better today. 
uh, we're much more Christian in how we treat all people, men and women, black and white, uh, people of all backgrounds today, than we were 150 years, even 50 years ago. Uh, and it's actually really helpful to remember and remind ourselves that, you know, uh, not, not just the, the big famous, you know, slavery and segregation, but Roman Catholics didn't really have full civil rights until like the 1960s almost. Uh, they, they couldn't run for office in a lot of the country. Uh, so in many ways, our culture and our laws have, have gotten much better, and therefore I would say actually more Christian. It's not a unidirectional story of just decline and fall. There's a lot of change going on, some for the better. Yeah, I think if I just just to keep one more you know, double click on that is, but I don't know that I have to have a euphemistic or or kind of romantic view of the past because I would acknowledge all the problems yeah. that that you and Dave I know all three of us would agree on those. Yeah. Um, but when I think when I react to the current moment and think about proscriptions, pol the types of policies and the and the types of kind of virtues that I would encourage, and I draw heavily from scripture. Or the or the the historical Christian uh, kind of orthodoxy is that Christian nationalism? Um, no, I don't think so. Although sometimes it can it can be depending upon the sort of motives of your heart, and this it does get a bit tricky. Sometimes we can advocate for the same policy positions from more of a nationalist motive, and sometimes more from a a Christian motive. Um, uh, I think that as a Christian, I'm not. Uh, I'm not going to apologize for that. I'm not going to you know, hide that. I can go in the public square and say, hey, I'm pro-life. I'm pro-religious liberty because I'm a Christian. And that's not, I don't think that's Christian nationalism. Um, but if I go in the public square and say, I think that we should restrict immigration so that only people who accept our values, quote unquote, um, there I have questions. And I, and I want to ask what exactly you mean. You know, if you mean people who will uh, assimilate to the ideals of the Constitution Declaration, great. But if you say you only want to let in people who uh, already abide by a Judeo-Christian heritage, I think I'm going to call that Christian nationalism. Now, it might, we might end up in the same place with some immigration restrictions, but I'm going to ask you careful questions about why. So what's bad about Christian nationalism? <laughs> no. If uh, assuming, assuming we don't adopt the simplistic sort of decline and fall narrative that you talked about, which is is wrong and simplistic. I mean, for example, when white Protestants were quite ascendant, many other Christians were oppressed. I mean, you said Catholics, for example, yeah. Blaine amendments proliferated. Mm -hmm. The black church was extraordinarily uh, oppressed along with the entire African-American community in, in the United States. But if you can get, if Christian nationalism improves itself, in other words, it ditches the the racism and the sectarianism what's bad about it um so what i argue in the book is that i think all nationalism all nationalism not just christian nationalism is if you push hard enough it is intrinsically illiberal uh, and what i mean is it's inconsistent with classical liberalism with with the ideals of the american founding now it can exist on a spectrum there can be more benign forms of it and more hostile aggressive forms of it but i think it is at heart, at root, illiberal. Because if you go back to that checkerboard image, uh, we all know that that's not what the world's cultures actually look like. Uh, the world's cultures look more like a Venn diagram than a checkerboard. There's fuzzy boundaries, they overlap, they change constantly. And so if you're gonna sit down and try to draw a hard boundary and tell me everyone over on this side, you have to be you know, French and everyone on this side, you have to be German. Um, 
you're going to end up having to use some force to make those lines line up and overlap exactly. There's nowhere in the world where those lines actually line up. And so you're going to use force. You're going to, it's going to be oppressive in character. At the very least, you're going to be treating people as second-class citizens if they don't conform to your preferred cultural template. And of course, there's much more sort of aggressive, aggressive and hostile forms of that. That's just the political danger. I actually think there's a bigger danger for the church, for, mm-hmm. for Christians. Uh, there's a whole host of dangers, the, the you know, number one of which is that it can really mislead us as Christians about what the gospel really is and what the what Jesus is asking us to do in this world. I don't think the resurrection of Christendom is the point of Christianity. I don't think that's why Jesus came. He didn't come to create Christendom. Um, I think that, you know, the kingdom of God is coming and will be inaugurated when he comes back. But that's not up to us. We're not going to build the kingdom of God here on, on earth. It can also mislead us about the, the church's role. Uh, we we can end up sort of outsourcing what the church ought to do to organs of the state and losing control over what the state is saying in our name. And that can be really, uh, that can lead in some really dangerous places spiritually. All right, we're getting so, in some questions. Oh, no, go ahead, Klein, and then I'll go to Sorry, questions. sorry. So, Paul, uh, as David said at the front end, we, uh, you and I have been close friends for a long time, and I know for a fact that we share virtually all of the core tenets of, of, of our faith. Um, in, in 2016, you participated and, and helped produce something, I think it was something called a, a Christian Declaration on American Foreign Policy. And when I was approached about it, I got a little, I got a little nervous and I chose not to participate precisely for some of the concerns that you're raising. Um, I thought the document was fine. Um, but you, I imagine, would draw a distinction between what that document was and what it was intending to do and what you're describing is, is Christian nationalism. But, you know, someone who Googles your name and sees that may be confused. Help us, help us understand that distinction. Yeah. So I just go back and repeat again that Christian involvement in politics is good. And that's not ipso facto Christian nationalism. And wanting to work for justice for all, which is, I think, what that declaration was about, um, is something that we should all do. We should work for equality, justice, and, 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 and righteousness, even in the public square. And I think what we were trying to do in that, in that declaration was lay out a Christian way of thinking about justice in the international space uh, as a helpful guide, because it's not something, Klon, as you know, it's not something that there's a lot of kind of guide. There's not many guides out there on Christian thinking on national security. I'm still waiting for your book on that. <laughs> uh, so that, that was kind of our effort to kind of help people think Christianly about international affairs. Um, it's, you know, if you want to, if you want the hardcore of Christian nationalism, it's really about enshrining Christian power in the public square. It's about uh, seeking tribal uh, privileges or perks or preeminence, rather than using your convictions as a source to work for justice for all. And that's, I think, what we were trying to do. Okay, one more me question before we go to some member questions. Uh, I'm not sure if you saw, but uh, Al Mohler had, I believe, you had Yormas Hazani on his podcast and really seemed to embrace a particular kind of vision of Christian mm-hmm. nationalism. And for those who don't know who Al Mohler is, he's the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, one of the most prominent conservative Protestant th- seminaries in the United States and a, and a big figure in the Southern Baptist Church. I'm really intrigued at how, as to how the Christian nationalist argument seemed to develop a lot of momentum in the era of Donald Trump. Why? 
why in the era of Donald Trump, when say not in the era of George W. Bush, who happened to, happens to be actually a believing, practicing Christian, and Donald Trump, by all appearances, his devotion to two Corinthians notwithstanding, <laughs> um, does not seem to be. That seems to be strange, and yet without question, there is absolutely something brewing in the Christian nationalist space now yeah. that wasn't in 2000 and 2004. The first thing I'd say is there, you're right, is there's something new in the water today, but I, I want to emphasize that nationalism has been part of American political life forever, literally forever. Mm -hmm. um, it's been more underground for most of the 20th century. Uh, but I, I, you know, you can find nationalist elements in on the on the political right and the political left, actually, uh, if you if you look hard enough. Um, uh, Pat Buchanan, right, was a voice for a lot of this stuff for many decades. He, now, he didn't win, and he wasn't as prominent as Trump became. Mm -hmm. So the question there is, if the message has been here for decades, even centuries, what made it sort of win, you know, in the last uh, 10 years? There I can give you some broader stuff about the financial crisis of 2008, economic dislocation, rapid cultural change, the Obama presidency. Um I think the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, I think I have something to do with it here. I think I think the frustration over those wars leads to a kind of a defensive uh, need to affirm your nation. Like there's something good about our nation, even if we can't quite win these wars. So I think there's something there as well. So there's kind of these broader structural features that kind of came together and led to a, a resurgence of nationalism, not just in the United States. You know, this is happening all around the world. I think we're seeing it in Russia and Hungary and Brazil and uh, Poland. And uh, there's, you know, the United States is just one part of this. Um, and uh, that's why these broader structural things, I think, have some explanatory power. All right. Jonathan asks, is modern evangelicalism and Christian nationalism fusing together? Um, I'm afraid that there is a growing convergence, although what do you mean by evangelical, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I, in, in the book, I kind of spend many pages, you know, wringing my hands about that. Uh, we all know that evangelical was originally just a religious label, but now it has come to be a cultural, a tribal, and a political label in the United States. And to that extent, self-identified, what I'd call tribal evangelicals, yeah, the absolute white evangelicals, are absolutely merging with this sense of Christian nationalism. Um, that's not true of all Christians. It's not true of religious evangelicals. It's almost certainly not true of non-white evangelicals. Uh, so those are the distinctions I draw there. All right. Uh, Travis asks a very good question. How does Christian nationalism reckon with the lack of orthodoxy that was prevalent in the founders? So you had deists, you had Unitarians, you had a lot of founders that would not be recognizably evangelical today or small o orthodox today. No. Um, and yet, you know, have things like Michael Flynn, I don't know if you saw this, and the Reawaken America tour was saying that if a pastor doesn't speak as much about the Constitution as he does scripture, that something wrong, that something's wrong to cheers in a church. So how does Christian nationalism recognize with the founders heterodoxy uh, it, it kind of shows that theology isn't the point and mm. christian nationalism is actually more of a secular ideology than it is to do with christianity uh so I'm, it's not surprising to me uh, that there's a lack of concern now you can always find some who will 
David Barton, right, who will who will reinterpret the history or find ways to claim that Thomas Jefferson actually was an Orthodox Christian after all, when we all know he wasn't. So there are some who, who make that argument. But by, by and large, their concern is with the Christian heritage or culture or values far more than the doctrine, the dogma, the belief, or the person of Jesus. Mm-hmm. All right, Claude, I've got a question for you. We're going to switch gears to TikTok unless you've got another question for Paul about the book. Let's do it. All right. Uh, weren't so, you going to ask about the forewood, Klon? Uh, is the forewood the greatest forward ever written? Or <laughs> <laughs> it's it's one of the best forewords yeah. I have read tonight. There you go. <laughs> I mean, I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> so, so Klon, I I got to say I was crushingly disappointed because I'm really sick of Twitter, to be mm. honest. And mm. I've been working on my dance moves to take my talents <laughs> to TikTok. And I was about to debut, and then I get this, I get this call from you, ban TikTok, yeah. which happens to be the most popular website in the world right now, yep. and the home of basically every American, the online home of basically American, every American college student, teen and tween. What the heck? Yeah. Why are you taking away all of our fun in my emerging social media platform? Well, to be clear, I just did another service to the nation and preventing you from uploading dance videos. So I feel good about that already. My, fir- I feel like My First Amendment dances are just <laughs> premier. Right. Right. So. <laughs> uh, well, okay. So look, for, for, for those who don't kind of know, I look, I've been on a personal crusade against, uh, speaking of Christian nationalism, um, uh, against TikTok now for years. And, and I, that's how I start off my latest a newsletter. I said, no one likes to told you so, but I told you so. And that's because there was a, a BuzzFeed article recently that uh, showed that um, uh, there were 80 hours of internal deliberations audio that was leaked from inside TikTok. And constantly in, in that audio, it was discussed how engineers and executives and other individuals located in in mainland China have access to US user data and information. And I have literally been arguing for three years that it has to be that way. And it has to be that way because one, Chinese law requires it. Uh, TikTok will say it's not a Chinese company, but they're doing a little bit of a of a, of a rhetorical uh, kind of backbend there because they're owned by ByteDance, which is a, a Chinese company uh, headquartered in Beijing. And Chinese law, national security law, and cybersecurity law, which requires data access, applies extraterritorial. So, so it means to any Chinese company, no matter where they operate, including their subsidiaries like TikTok, hmm. um, are, are are bound by these laws. Um, and then two, it, it's technically uh, it has to be that way because um, the the majority of engineering for the app is done in China still. And to leverage the information that is necessary to do things like security updates or to monetize content or just the the basic, you know, kind of coding on on this app requires access to the underlying data, including American users. That's how it's constantly refined and made even more powerful for for user bases. So um, this BuzzFeed article simply, you know, was another example uh, of, of, of facts aligning with what, you know, some of us already knew to be the case. Okay, well, there are 133 million user American users of TikTok. It is by far the most popular social media uh, platform in the United States. And like other American 
social media platforms, they collect a ton of information. So they're not unique in that sense. And, and it's, of course, your images and your biometrics and your locational history and your contacts, but also things like, if you look in their terms of service, it says things like um, your, your keyboard swipes and patterns, your online media consumption and online shopping habits and a whole host of other information. Uh, and so it, it collects all that. The big difference between them and say Meta or Facebook or Twitter is their relationship with the Chinese government, which I, you know, just explained. So, you know, I, I just, in this latest newsletter, I just said, look, you know, there's no longer any question as to whether or not information is being harvested on, on Americans or that that information can be and is be being leveraged by the Chinese government to, um, for a whole host of reasons, but many of which could be used to um, infringe upon and ultimately threaten U.S. interests, including individuals. Uh, and I said, look, we, we have to ban this thing. I mean, like, we've just gotten to the point where, in my view, it does us no good to have banned, say, something like Huawei that was going to build the 5G uh, infrastructure in the United States until it was stopped, only then to allow an app, as you said, David, the most popular um, website in the world and the most popular social media app in the United States to simply be harvesting all that information that we were trying to block Huawei from gathering in the first place. So let me channel my inner 16-year-old. <laughs> Mr. Kitchen, sir, um, I'm from the South, so I'm going to yeah, say so. Right, I'll take yeah. it. <laughs> Mr. Kitchen, sir, why do I care? If China has my information, what are they going to do with it? Like, I'm yeah. just a sophomore at Independence High School. Come on. What are they going to do to hurt me? Nothing. And I get a tremendous amount of enjoyment out of this app. Isn't this like telling me to not watch a Marvel movie because they've been to China on, on some meaningless like symbol in the middle of the movie? Yeah. So no, it's not like that. And thank you for your for your polite and and and, and kind question. Uh, I would say two things. The first thing I always say to this because I get this a lot. Um, it's not about you fundamentally, right? Mm -hmm. So w in a moment, I will scare you about what all they can do to you personally as an individual. But before I ever get there, what I'm most concerned about is the comprehensive societal level insights that are mm -hmm. garnered through the collection of this information. So it's not just knowing, you know, which Americans can do the dance moves and, and which can't, or even where Americans, you know, do their online shopping per se. It is about understanding um, if I, as the Chinese government, want to shape a political perspective inside the continental United States, well, I know with an astonishing level of detail precisely how to craft individual messages for individual demographics and which media um, uh, avenues are going to be the most fruitful for, um, for moving that audience. Um, and I, I did a 60 Minutes interview on this uh, two years ago, and one of the things I described was, you know, by gaining this type of insight and combining it with things like the OPM hack, the Chinese government is able to then build the perfect legend, essentially, for a human intelligence source that they want to place in the United States. So by having the, the OPM, which is essentially the government's HR department, by having that information and, and seeing who gets accepted into the U.S. intelligence community or into the Department of Defense or such like that, they can take that information and then craft kind of the perfect mole, the mole that will be just too good uh, to, to not hire 
and um, and there's no doubt that they're that they're doing that. So my first point is, look, it's not really just about you. It's about this kind of society wide uh, insight that we're that we're giving them on the individual, however. Um, Maybe right now you're a 16 year old who just likes Marvel movies and, and wants to kind of do dance moves. I get it. You know, I told I like I'm with you. I get it. Um, you're but, suppressing my self-expression. Eh, well, you know, and I'm sorry. And I want to give you an alternative, you know, arena for that. But but you may one day want to be a CEO of a company. You, you may want to be uh, a senior government official. You, you may have some place of responsibility or authority in the, the local or state or national level. And you know what? Because data is so cheap to store and because we've gotten so good at processing data, they're going to have a file on you. And it's not just going to be what they could potentially blackmail you with. I mean, I hope that you're not dumb enough to put that stuff online to begin with, but we know that people I might are, be. but it, I might right, be right. Mr. Kitchen, sir. Right, exactly. But but what it is 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 it's it's a penetrating deep insight into you, mm-hmm. and that enables all kinds of nefarious things. So anyone in the United States who's worried about what big tech may or may not be doing to them, I'm usually a little bit dismissive on that. But when we turn to the Chinese government, oh no, you've got every reason in the world to be concerned. And now what we're doing is we're actually super enabling them to be everything that we hope that they won't be. Were you guys subject to the OPM hack? Yeah. Yes. I, I got the letter from OPM saying my information was uh, uh, compromised. So, Klon, I have a question. Um, and yep. and par- pardon the possible ignorance of this. Tell me under what legal authority or instrument or regulatory body we can ban TikTok. Is this part of regulating interstate commerce or something? Uh, and then second, is it actually technologically feasible? C- can this be done? Is it one of these things that like, it's the internet, there's almost nothing you can do about it? Yeah, it's a good question. So there's a number of different ways, and David will have insights in this too, I'm sure. Um, I mean, from an executive standpoint, there's a number of economic and national security emergency powers that the president could use. And in fact, the President Trump had um, pursued a ban of TikTok, uh, but then thoroughly confused it toward the end and utterly failed to 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 kind of see it through um, and got, he, you know, yeah, it was bad. It was that, that whole thing was silly because he, he wanted a, a, the government to get a cut. And then he started weighing in on behalf of Oracle versus Microsoft and it was all bad. But from a legal perspective, um, there are a number of things that the, that, the, that the president can do, especially when something is deemed a national security threat. So that's, that's essentially easily doable. Congress too could pass a law and it could be signed and that would be that. Um, in terms of technically, um, the way you would begin is you would you would engage all of the major app stores and you'd say okay you know apple google um you know the samsung app store and others you guys you you can't carry this in the united states right you're just you're not going to be able to do this um now there are some some kind of outside market app stores that some people can go to now on an iphone you can't on an iPhone, you have to you have to get an app from their app store. Now, that's something that Congress and their kind of antitrust fervor is actually trying to undermine, which I think is just another reason why I think that's a bad idea. But you know, Google has a different model where um, you know you can do what's called sideloading, where an app could be done. But I, again, I think there are ways that you can minimize. You wouldn't eliminate the challenge, but you would so dramatically in, uh, decrease the availability of the app, that it would have meaningful uh, impact in the way that I think we should go. Um, So uh, the reason I brought up the OPM hack is one of the things that I think is, uh, one of the the things that I think can get individual 
is identity theft. Uh, this could be totally and completely coincidence, but I was part of the OPM hack, and that means the hack of the security clearance files of, was it hundreds of thousands? Certainly more than 10, yes. it was, yeah, hundreds of thousands of Americans with security clearances, ha uh, Chinese hacked that database. This could be total coincidence, total coincidence, but I had two incidents of I I uh, identity theft occur after that. Um, what is an, is there sort of any sort of identity theft risk tied to this kind of information or is that not really a factor? Well, I would say this kind of information can certainly be used that way. I don't think that that's the way the Chinese are using it. Uh, so, I mean, there's certainly enough information gathered by all of these social media apps and by not just social media apps, but apps in general, and most of our online use more, more generally. Uh, that could easily be used and could contribute to identity theft. But that's not fundamentally my concern. I remember when the OPM hack uh, occurred and we got pulled into a, 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 um, an auditorium and, and the director of the agency that I was with at the time, you know, promised us, hey, don't worry, we're going to provide a couple of years of free identity protection. I remember thinking to myself, like, this is not my concern. Like, mm -hmm. Beijing opening a credit card in my name is just not what I'm actually worried about <laughs> here. Um, and, and I think that's proven to be the case. Um, uh, that being said, um, there have been a number of other hacks, so like Anthem hack and, um, and, and, you know, Marriott and other things, those easily could have contributed to what you've experienced along with the OPM hack. But I don't think that the primary concern with China or even other kind of nation state hacking is, um, is identity theft as much as what the kind of strategic uses that they are, um, they're pursuing, you know, and, and just on the TikTok thing. I always ask my friends, like, if you were the National Security Administration, the NSA, our super cyber ninja people in the, in the US government, and I told you that, hey, you guys, I'm going to give you the opportunity to build an app that one third of the Chinese population is going to use. What do you think their response to that would be? They would be licking their chops. I mean, that would be just one of the most appetizing opportunities for collection and intelligence gathering and operations that you could imagine. Well, that's precisely what TikTok is. You've got a third mm -hmm. of the US population on this thing. And I get it. You know, I've said this before, but I don't blame people for wanting to have fun on the app. Fun on the app is not my concern. But people's ignorance of the threat does nothing to diminish it. Mm -hmm. And so I'm trying to raise awareness. All right, last question, then we're going to move on to Ukraine. Uh, this is from Travis. Is uninstalling the app enough, or are there extra steps we need to take as individuals with regards to the cybersecurity threat it poses? Yeah, I think uninstalling it is fine. I mean, you, the vast majority of Americans ultimately aren't going to feel this uh, in terms of the threat, and that's fine. Uh, mm -hmm. Uninstall it, move along, don't think twice about it. That'll be fine. Um, now, what they've got, they've got. And I do have some concerns about what I would call persistent access, but um, I think that's probably unlikely at this point because that would, that would tend to have a, a pretty high footprint and because they have so many other alternative avenues for getting much of the same information, honestly, uh, that, that that wouldn't be necessary. So I think uninstall it, feel good about yourself, move along. All right, now let's move on. We're, we're hitting a bunch of things tonight. Let's move on to Ukraine. Um, and I'll start you with you, Paul. How would you summarize the state of the conflict now, and what are the short and medium term? What what do you forecast for the in the short and medium term? Um, I'm gonna maybe embarrass myself. 
my, my day-to-day knowledge of this is a little bit shallow. Uh, I've been immersed in writing my next book on, on <laughs> Afghanistan. Uh, my awareness we'll of get the to war. Afghanistan later. Yeah. We'll get to Afghanistan later. <laughs> Ask me anything about 2009 and I'll tell you anything you want to. <laughs> um, my, my understanding is that the war has, you know, it focused on Donbass. The last I checked in, the Russians were kind of winning um, inch by inch, and it was gravitating towards a frozen conflict, which is, I think, maybe what the Russians are aiming for. They have these frozen conflicts elsewhere in Europe, uh, Transnistria and South Ossetia that they use for drug smuggling, weapon smuggling, human smuggling, and that might serve their interests just fine. It's not what they aimed for at the beginning, but it could be a victory of sorts for them. So that's where I think it is right now. That's not in Ukraine's interest. It's not in the West or NATO's interest. I still think there's a lot more we could be doing. Uh, Some of the stuff we could be doing, we had to have started putting train up three months ago for it to have a real impact on the battlefield uh, today or next week. Uh, I'm not sure we're moving fast enough for it though. But what are Klon- some of the things? Yeah. What are some of the things that you think we should be doing, or could be could have been doing three months ago that we're not doing? As soon as Russia uh, failed in the initial conquest, and much more so when they started to withdraw from Kiev and Kharkiv uh, and the whole north and northeast, that's when we should have um, changed, sort of upped our goal mm-hmm. from making it hurt to winning the war which means we should have started put in train giving Ukraine heavy weapons, tanks, artillery, jets, uh, the whole panoply. We've given them tons of light arms. And I think there's been some heavy weapons, but I would have liked to have seen the spigot just turn full blast, turn it all the way up to 11 on every weapon system possible. Once it became apparent that we could win this thing, we should have gone all in. Claude, same question. State of the war, is there anything that we should be doing that we're not doing? I think I think Paul largely has it right there I, on, on his latter point in terms of you know what we sh- what we should have done and, and even still ought to be doing now is um, yeah I think opening the spigot um, I think we have it, in the early days of all this it was completely understandable for us to have you know narrow goals you know like yeah okay let's let's exact a cost so that maybe we can convince Putin not to do this frequently or or perhaps even again but but not too long after that, it became clear that, wait a minute, there's a real opportunity here, and it doesn't require American personnel on the battle lines. There's there's mm-hmm. a chance to so thoroughly chasten Putin and to put him in a hole that that we could relegate him to as, as a somewhat of a backwater for, a, for the foreseeable future, and that there's every reason to believe that that's in our American interest. Um, and we've not we've not taken advantage of that. Um, I feel like the, the, the Biden administration particularly has is, is grown very adept at talking itself out of um, winning. You know, the, the, like mm-hmm. the, it's reasonable and right uh, and, and, and good to, to be concerned about escalation and those kinds of things. But there's, there's a lot of room for maneuver here. And, and we have not pressed uh, the way I think we should. The thing I'm concerned about most uh, at this point, I do think it is somewhat in a stalemate. I am concerned um, that uh, the broader American um, focus on this is beginning to wane as just other things mm-hmm. kind of come in. And then, you know, if we see Republican gains in the House and Senate, there is a, it, it's hard for me to assess the size, but there is a vocal portion um, uh, uh, of policymakers from that corner 
who I don't think at all are committed to, to seeing this through and, and who could, who could actively push against it. Um, and I think that's a real problem that, that I would like to see this kind of engaged quickly uh, so as to minimize the risk of that. I mean, these are words I never thought I'd say, and I'm interested to think if you think it's fair. Is it possible that a Republican House majority would be softer on Russia than a Democratic House majority? I mean, if you listen to the rhetoric, you have to say you have mm -hmm. to say yes to that. I mean, the, mm -hmm. it's it's crazy. Now, here's what I think is is particularly nuts about that. So I'm just going to for a moment set aside all of the the geopolitical foreign policy realities that I think we've made on this podcast and others time and time again. I think those all hold. But politically speaking, we all will look back at the Afghanistan debacle. And that is when the political bottom floor just fell out for the Biden administration. I mean, it's just clear mm -hmm. as day that that is when they began to tank and they never really recovered. The idea then that a Republican House um, would choose a similar type of failure in Ukraine mm. and think that they're going to escape the political ramifications of that, to me, that's madness. I, I, I just, I don't think the American people are there. Um, I think it's an open discussion as to what our support should look like. That's fine. We can we can have those debates. But but if if the promise of May, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and you know Josh Hawley and and all these others is that hey look you know once we get the numbers we're going to cut all this off and it's going to be all American domestic spending all the time. Well, it's not hard to predict what that's going to look like in Ukraine, and I guarantee you the American people are not going to like that. And I yeah. just think it's foolheartedly and short sighted. Like I'm going to maybe just, yeah, go I, ahead. I would say I, I might disagree with you there. I think you may be overestimating how much people truly care. People cared at the beginning for the first month. You know, you see the Ukrainian flags everywhere. But as the longer this lasts, the more attention wanes and people just wander and they don't care. And if Russia wins the war or wins a slice of territory six months or six years from now, I, I'm not convinced anybody at home will pay a price, domestic political price for that at all. You know, I do. I, that's a that's a really good question. I think that it, a lot depends on how catastrophic the situation on the ground. So, for example, I wonder to go to your your you know move to to start to move towards Afghanistan. Would would Joe Biden be in the position that he is now if the fall of Kabul happened eighteen months after the pullout, as opposed to? during the pullout, you know, where it was catastrophic, it was sudden, the images of refugees and people yeah. trying to cling to American airplanes uh, was so potent. And that's what I wonder about Ukraine. If you have a situation where they take the Donbass, they grind the Ukrainian army into dust, and then they reach some sort of armistice that partitions the country or ceasefire that partitions the country. I'm kind of where you are, Paul, that America would barely raise an eyebrow. But if you had, if you systematically deprived the Ukrainians of heavy weapons and the ammunition that they need to stay in this fight, and I don't think people realize we're so used to counterinsurgency fights that the U.S. has been involved in since 2001. Uh, there was an interview of an American soldier who has volunteered to become a part of the Ukrainian Foreign Legion, and he said, this is combat combat. This is like nothing that he's seen. And the ammunition expenditures are just off the chart. So if you if you deprive Ukraine of this this 
in really an enormous amount of weaponry and munitions that's required to just stay in the fight and they collapse, then you could have an Afghanistan type situation where everyone's wondering why are 2 million people running West as fast as they possibly can. And that's what, I, that's what I'm worried about the stalemate and taking the Donbass and the armistice, but I'm also worried that our will flags and there's a collapse. I don't think that's likely under current conditions at all, but that's, that is something that is at least a non-zero, there's a non-zero possibility of that. You know, it occurs to me that maybe Putin understands this dynamic and mm -hmm. that he understands that he has a, a, an interest in winning slowly, because if he wins catastrophically, if he wins dramatically, then it could rile us up all over again and we could mm -hmm. restart the war or something. The slower he wins, the more assured the victory could be. Uh, and that might be why the conflict is kind of grinding down to a frozen conflict where he he takes an inch every year, you know. Uh, that might be part of what he's out for. So uh, Phil asked a question, and uh, Paul, I'll ask you this, because you were talking about going heavier earlier. Is there, if we'd gone heavier earlier, does that raise the possibility, or would that have raised the possibility of a potential Russian nuclear response? Um, I, uh, I, I don't think so. I never want to say uh, anything for certain. Um, uh, I think that, you know, it, there's some clear red lines. We should not send troops to Ukraine. Uh, there should be no NATO troops in Ukraine. I think that's obvious. No, no fly zone, nothing like that. Um, but sending weapons uh, is a <laughs> tried and true tradition of proxy wars uh, that we've done and they've done to us, we've done to them for decades and decades. And if we just up the game on what weapons we're sending, no, I don't think that uh, risks a nuclear escalation. Might It might trigger an escalation of some sort, Russia might, uh, uh, you know, start leveling cities even more than it's done, more war crimes, that kind of thing. But I'm not sure they'd jump immediately to nuclear escalation. So let me ask you this: This is a, a, a part of the dilemma here. As in, you know, in talking to some of my sources and working through this, we've got a dilemma that. Let's go back to uh, a different, a very different war at a different time, 1973, the Yom Kippur War when Syria and Egypt surprise attack against Israel, Israel takes terrifying battlefield losses. And we do exactly what you said, Paul, we open the spigots. We have Operation Nickel Grass. Literally, Israeli pilots are flying what were five seconds earlier, American F-4s straight into combat. We can't do that with Ukraine. We can't just hand them over 50 or 100 F-16s. They don't know how to use them. They don't know how to maintain them. We just can't give them a bunch of M1 Abrams tanks. They don't know how to maintain. You know, they can learn how to use them pretty quickly, but the maintenance issue and keeping the force in the field. So are we in a kind of a catch-22 where you say, if you're going to really re-equip Ukraine, you got to pull a bunch of people back from this life-or-death fight and train them up in brand new systems, which creates a, its own sense of risk to the front. Oh. Um, so you kind of end up defaulting towards whatever's just going to kind of maintain the status quo as much as possible because the introduction of heavy weapons at any kind of scale is going to require a kind of retrenchment of the Ukrainian military or at least a, uh, a, a real drawdown of the top units in the Ukrainian military from the front while they train up on new equipment and that raises unacceptable risks. So are we kind of in a catch-22 here? Yeah, so, so two answers to that. 
first, that's precisely why I said we, sh we should have started three months ago, right? That right. We need to have done this stuff already for it to, uh, to be a meaningful option now. Second, we actually did do some of that eight years ago. After mm. the first invasion and the annexation of Crimea, we've had a very low-key, under-the-radar defense cooperation with Ukraine, which is why they performed so well starting in January, February this year. And I, I do want to emphasize this is an unsung victory that actually mm. spans sort of three administrations here. Let's give bipartisan credit uh, to Obama, Trump, and, and Biden for sustaining this low-key, under-the-radar effort that has reformed the Ukrainian Ministry of Defense. It has sort of modernized some of their command and control, uh, and it's enabled them to make better use of the aid we have given them already, right? So three cheers for that, thumbs up for us. Um, and it's a proof of concept that we can do this stuff. Like, I, we live in an era of defeatism where we do everything wrong. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's recognize there's a proof of concept here. We can do this stuff right. Uh, we're a bit behind. We, we started out well in January, February. We're now behind the curve. And I think we would need a lot of extra work to kind of catch back up and position Ukraine well for a longer war. At the very beginning, I, I said that this was possibly a 10-day, 10-month, or 10-year war. We're well past the 10 days. We're, I think we're going to blow past the 10 months and we're on track yeah. for the 10-year war, which I hate. I think that's terrible. But if that's true, then let's start acting like it and let's start preparing and arming the Ukrainians for that 10-year war. All right, Klein, question for you. Um, unrest in Russia that knocks Putin out of power. Is that a hope or a plan? Ooh. <laughs> uh, it's a headache i can tell you that um well look i mean <clears throat> guys like like the three of us hear something like that and you immediately begin thinking about well okay there are advantages to potentially a, a new leader in in russia but only if he's he or she's the leader you want uh right. and 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 can be shaped the way we would intend to shape them um I think no matter what, number one, I don't think that that's a likelihood in the near term. Mm -hmm. I think I think um, Putin has managed to avoid uh, a, a moment of real risk when things were looking particularly bad in Ukraine. But I think the as as those things have somewhat stabilized in his favor, uh, that risk has probably declined a bit. Um, I would not. I personally would not advocate for a U.S. strategy that presupposes or that banks on a change in Russian leadership. Uh, if it happens, I will gladly adjust to that, and, and we can think about what that might mean. But um, I think Paul's 100% right in terms of uh, acting like this is going to be a decade-long war or longer uh, and, and, and starting to lay the groundwork for thriving throughout that decade. The one thing I'll, I'll, I'll add to that is that some of our NATO allies and even non-NATO allies have equipment that Ukraine can use now and that mm -hmm. they, they can just jump in and use. So, you know, Polish MiGs, for example. Um, okay, the time has come for the United States to start working with Poland and with some of these other allies and say, okay, look, we can get you, uh, you know, F-18Bs and F-16s and, you know, and F-22s. And we, 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 can, we can chart that path and get you modernized. I need you to park those MiGs on a Ukrainian uh, flight line and leave the keys in the seat and just walk away. And we need mm -hmm. to make that happen. Um, we can do that. Uh, the, the only thing that's preventing us from that, I think, are largely political considerations inside the White House. Those have been present since day one. And the disappointing thing is that we have not 
uh, kind of concluded those and made a decide made a decision that okay we're in this now there's a way to do this in a way that sustains and defends uh, American interests uh, without again requiring American boots on the battlefield so I think we should um, we should be inclined toward doing those things so uh, last question about this before we get to Afghanistan um, I've seen uh, KT is right uh, asks and um, about our weapon stockpiles and the stockpiles of our allies. And I think this is an unheralded, un, uh, underappreciated challenge is that it turns out our European allies and we had kind of shockingly low stocks of weapons um, and have been depleting <laughs> some of our own weapon stocks in a way that a lot of Americans don't realize. And the Europeans perhaps in some ways even more, they had even less uh, even fewer weapons ready to go for a true force-on-force -force conflict. So how much is that a factor? Is uh, are, are we really looking at a situation where our own or our allies' weapon stocks are at a dangerous level because we're not, we don't have enough to help Ukraine? <laughs> yeah, so I think the lesson here is um, this is kind of chickens coming home to roost from three decades of budget cutting. Uh, the post-Cold War peace dividend. We slashed our defense budget by over a third, uh, and we're not that crippled our ability to invest in things like uh, weapon stockpiles, for example. Uh, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were very actually small and temporary blip up in the defense budget and a long-term decline. Uh, right now, our defense budget is something like like 3.2 percent of GDP, which is about the lowest it's been since about 1939. Uh, the, the, the defense budget in the 1920s and 30s, the so-called isolationist period, averaged 2% of GDP. And we're, we're on track to get down about 2.7 by the end of this decade. So we've adopted the defense budget almost of classic isolationism. And this is what we get for it. We get a, a, a crippling of our ability to do the things we ought to do to defend allies and defend the, the liberal international order. I was, so, I was shocked when I read um, the Battle of Mosul. Okay, the Battle of Mosul, which, again, the, talking about un, underappreciated events in history, the Battle of Mosul is one of the most intense urban battles since World War II. And our own, we depleted a shocking percentage of our precision-guided weapons in that one battle. Um, much, now, that's not, we're, you know, that's not talking about the kinds of weapons necessarily that we're giving Ukraine, but that's just a data point, Paul, that you're right, that we just don't have the stocks. Klan, I, I interrupted you. No, 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 it's fine. I was gonna say, so two years ago, the National Defense Industrial Association did this amazing report where it gave our defense industrial base a C grade, you know, A, B, C, D, trending toward D. Mm. And um, one, you know, if I were to kind of put a silver lining on this, I would say like, look, if we think that we're depleting uh, ammunition stockpiles quickly now, imagine the context of a conflict with China, oh, right? And so, you know, one of the things that if, if I want to put a happy face on this is say, look, our, de our, our defense industrial base is not where it needs to be, as Paul rightly uh, raises in terms of our spending. And so if we want to be prepared for an eventuality that, you know, most serious uh, strategists is, is, are, are saying is, is more likely than not, uh, or at least more likely than it has been, um, then, then this is a great spur to kick the, the defense industrial base into gear, right? The, and, and what needs to be uh, sent now is a clear um, signal from the administration that, okay, 
this is where we are. This is a decades long war. We're getting serious about defense spending again. And we have to first begin with replenishing our stocks. And one final, my, my boss at AI, Corey Shockey, would scold me if I failed to mention that fundamentally, you know, despite whatever the budgeting is, fundamentally, the lack of enough bombs and bullets is a defense leader's failure. Mm-hmm. They have a job, right? Mm-hmm. And that job includes making sure that we have the bombs and the bullets we need to fulfill uh, the, the defense mission that it has been given. And the fact that we uh, apparently do not have those is an indictment on um, our long-term leaders, you know, defense spending being what it is. There are just some basic fundamentals, uh, you know, with the money that we spend on, you know, environmental and, you know, all kinds of other policies. The fact that we're running out of bullets, you know, after six months of a war in Ukraine, supplying Ukraine, that's just unacceptable. Right. Colin, you said something there. You said um, that we need to have the defense budget to prepare for the long war. And I just say, it's not just the war in Ukraine, right? I, no, that's right. I, it's it's a long second Cold War. Uh, that's how I'd, I'd say it. And I, I, don't, I don't celebrate that. Some people don't like using that phrase because it sounds like we're wishing for it. I don't wish for it. I just recognize the reality of it. It's here. And that's what we need to plan and budget for. All right. So this is since this is Paul Miller book night, um, we started with your most recent book. And let's end with your next book. So you're writing a book about Afghanistan. We've got two minutes. <laughs> Preview it for us. <laughs> well, I spent 10 years working on the war in Afghanistan from the Army, the CIA, and the White House. And um, now I'm going to write a book on presidential decision-making. Uh, it's, a, it's a history of presidential decision-making covering the whole 20 years, all four presidents and every major strategic inflection point. Uh, and I've been interviewing uh, officials on the record uh, uh, from every administration, um, and uh, it's been remarkable to get their firsthand impressions and memories and axe grinding and other things, uh, and trying to weave that into one big narrative is uh, a big challenge, and it's, uh, it's a big heartache, too, I have to say. It's a big heartache, something I worked on for so long, to then relive every moment and every mistake yeah. is, is quite heavy and quite hard, but I hope to have um, a draft done in about a year, year and a half, and so the book, you might see it uh, a year after that. And the working title is Choosing Defeat, How America Lost Afghanistan. So good, happy note to end on. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, I, you know, one day what, what, I, I got to have you back on either Dispatch Live or podcast because I want to pick your brain about the reasons why the surge in Iraq was so much more successful than the surge in Afghanistan. Yep. Uh, I, I served in the surge in Iraq and I saw with my own eyes, yeah. the change. Uh, I was there at the I was there at the tipping point, and um, and we didn't have the same success in Afghanistan. So that's a preview of coming Dispatch Live slash Dispatch Pod uh, attractions, and also as a preview of attractions, Paul's going to be a guest later this month on the Good Faith Podcast, where we're really going to go deep on Christian nationalism because there's a lot more to say about that. Um, well, just check, ticked over to eight o'clock. Thanks, Klon. Thanks, Paul. Thank you, dispatch members, for uh, watching and for your outstanding questions. And we'll be back next week. Thank you.